You're listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast about world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Hi, I'm Kevin Dunn, Professor of Political Science and Director of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. And I'm Stacey Philbrick-Yadov, Chair of the Political Science Department and co-host of this podcast. Today's episode focuses on an exploration of the intersection of climate change, environmental development, and conflict on the African continent. We'll hear from someone perhaps uniquely positioned to discuss this, Professor Anthony Young, the Director of Climate Change and Green Growth at the African Development Bank. He sat down with the architect of today's episode, Senior IR Major Willa Dow. Hi, Willa. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this topic? Hi. Um, I'm so excited to be on this podcast today because this topic is one which feels like the accumulation of my time at HWS and my studies here. It's a really great summation of what I've been studying in the IR department. I've always cared about conservation and environmental issues simply because I see climate change as one of the biggest issues today, but especially of my future. Um, That being said, I've always really geeked out on political science. Uh, So my IR major has been really helpful in focusing my poli-sci studies and environmental studies. In Professor Dunn's seminar class, we learned about the catastrophic convergence theory, which is a combination of poverty, violence, and climate change that causes what the author calls a catastrophic convergence. I found this idea and a lot of the other ones proposed in that class made me ask a lot of questions um, and was the framing theory for my research this past summer, where I asked the overarching question, have colonial legacies in Africa impacted how Africans are experiencing and adapting to climate change? So, Willa, you described this concept of catastrophic convergence. And before we listen to your interview, I wonder if you could give us a little bit more context on this concept. Where does it come from? And is it particularly pronounced in Africa or these dynamics that we could identify in other parts of the world, too? Yeah. So the theory of comes from Christopher Parenti's book, The Tropic of Chaos, And the Tropic of Chaos refers to a geographical zone that's affected by a specific weather pattern called the Intertropical Convergence Zone, or the ITCZ zone. Um, This weather pattern brings seasonal rainfalls and temperature changes, but it's being dramatically affected by climate change. That is to say that areas in the ITCZ zone are disproportionately experiencing climate change compared to other parts of the world. This zone almost exclusively affects um, the global south. So when paired with the other two variables of poverty and violence, there are a number of countries in Africa who are at this point of catastrophic convergence. What I appreciated also about the theory is how clear the logic was to me. Um, Poverty often makes it difficult for individuals to acquire or have consistent access to basic resources. And violence, especially long-term violent conflicts, are often based in competition over the acquisition of resources. And then with climate change, many resources become scarcer or there is a greater need for them. And the cycle of this is mutually reinforcing. And obviously this theory is far more complex than this and there are a lot more caveats, but this is kind of the basic summation of it. As for where this can be seen, these dynamics can be seen in many places. 
in Central America, parts of South America, but also, and I'm saying this knowing specifically your expertise in Yemen, but it's a clear example of how pre-existing conditions of poverty and violence are only exacerbated by droughts and flooding and other environmental effects of climate change. So for this episode, you are really fortunate to have a conversation with Professor Anthony Nyong, who's Director of Climate Change and Green Growth uh, at the African Development Bank. Professor Nyong has had actually a really impressive career um, that directly relates to numerous aspects of your own research interest. Last year, he was named as one of the 100 most influential people in climate policy, and he was one of the coordinating lead authors of the fourth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which resulted in him being co-recipient of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. Not too shabby. So let's listen to your discussion, Professor Nyong. In your opinion, what are some of the examples um, of the way climate change is already affecting the African continent? Yeah, thanks so much, Rila. I, I think this is um, really very well known and researched that um, uh, we're seeing climate change affecting quite uh, a lot of the key developmental sectors on the continent. Let's start with uh, uh, agriculture, for instance. We've seen research that shows that we could lose valuable agricultural land and productivity to magnitudes of about 50% by 2040 or so, you know, and we're already seeing many of that happening. The zones that were um, classified as suitable for coffee in Uganda, for instance, are no longer suitable because the temperatures have gone uh, beyond what it was meant to be. And so we are seeing reduction in um, yields is already happening right now. If you're familiar with Eastern Africa, I know your study is largely in South. Uh, 2019, we had a low-cost invasion, army low-cost. It's everything inside. Crops devoured everything. And it's, you know, that was uh, yeah, 2019, 2020 last year. It coincided with the period of the lockdown that farmers could not go out. So they stayed indoors and all their crops were basically devoured, devastated by these creatures. And it brought down Kenya's economy by, I think, about 3% GDP. And then we also have seen a resurgence of that low cost now. The eggs that were led then have now hatched a second wave. So it's not only that we have a first and second wave of COVID-19, we have the first and second wave of the locusts. And we call it locust 19 you know, for us, just to let us know that we are dealing with other, um, with other uh, calamities, with other pandemics that many people are not looking at. Then when you look at water, climate change for us is largely about water. Temperature increase is okay, but we have these extremes, you know. We have extreme climate events largely tending more towards hurricanes, cyclones, you know, and uh, and so on. So we had tropical cyclone die and tropical cyclone Kenneth 2019 devastated the economy of Malawi and uh, Zimbabwe and um, was Zimbabwe, Mozambique and Mali. Sorry, Malawi. They lost about a thousand people. You know, we had that. That's mag that's a huge magnitude of loss for a one-to-day event. You know, 
then they lost infrastructure worth about $2 billion. And let's understand something about this infrastructure. A lot of Africa's infrastructure is built with borrowed money. They go to the banks, they come to us, the MDBs, and they borrow these monies. And then they need to do a projection, a financial analysis to show that that um, money or the investment they are making with that money will be able to pay off the loan and the interest. Four years down the line, you have Hurricane Idai, wipes away that infrastructure. Who pays off the loan? Did they come back to the banks to say, give me additional money. Let me fix what I had built before. That means the debt sustainability becomes shaky. That means the debt profile, the debt burden increases on these poor countries, you know, and so on. Or do they just abandon it and go look for something else to do? So it puts them in a really deep quagmire that people are not really seeing the link between this infrastructure that is being damaged and how it affects their total economies. And then, okay. Well, that, that kind of ties in perfectly to my, my second question. Um, so at the 2019 Convention on Climate Change, you stated in an interview that only 3% of total climate finance is going to Africa. Um, do you see finance as the biggest hurdle in climate change mitigation, or do you feel like it's something else? Well, uh, for sitting where I sit on the African continent, finance is it. We know what to do, but we need the resources to put these things into action. Everybody talks about the problems of Africa. We know what the problems are, but you don't do this. We talk. 3% of the climate, of total global climate finance is programmed in Africa, and we know why. Because 90% of global climate resource goes to mitigation, trying to bring down you know, CO2 emissions. We don't play in that space. The total emissions from Africa, 54 sovereign nations, is about 4% of total global. So if we're doing just 4%, and I believe that you're going to get these resources based on the amount of emissions you make so that you can drive down emissions. So you see, we're already playing in a very small space. Many African countries have already reached the, the carbon neutrality, the zero emissions thing. If you look at some African countries, they are not on the map of emissions. They are very low, so nobody pays attention to them. But we, when you turn around now and look at the impacts, the vulnerabilities, you see Africa high up there. So, and it's very unfair, it's a matter of justice that we are not polluting that much and yet we bear the large cost of this impact, that something needs to be done, that the global community needs to shift from just allocating 10% of global resources to adaptation to trying to see if we can reach parity, 50-50, 50% each on mitigation adaptation so that countries in Africa, developing countries in Africa, not just us, the other least developed countries could have greater access to Financial well, this was one of my biggest questions that I was coming into this interview with was what should be the role of international inter institutions in equalizing this inequity that we see between who's contributing the most to climate change, but then also like, I mean, I know obviously Africa's not um, contributing a lot to climate change, but at the same time, they're also 
African countries are going to be feeling the effects of it most. So what can international institutions do to kind of, you know, equalize that out? I'll tell you what, there are several international organizations that are coming in trying their best, you know, but I want to believe that this best is not good enough because people have not really understood the cycle or what is ahead of us. Now we're complaining of migration to Europe, migration from the Sahel. Most of the insurgencies in Northern Central West Africa come from the Sahel region. Whether you call them Iswas, you call them ISS, you call them Boko Haram, you call them whatever you need to call them from Mali right down to Djibouti. They come from the Sahel. Why? Because the Sahel is the iconic picture of climate vulnerability in Africa. And so what do we see? We see droves of young men and women, able-bodied men and women living, heading where? Europe. And so like my president of the African Development Bank, what you're seeing is just an advanced party. The main one is coming as the magnitudes increase. So it is easier for these international organizations to take the battle to where it really is happening. How do we build resilience in Africa so that we stop or minimize the people that come into Europe in search of livelihoods? Because they're not just coming alone. Where those livelihoods are not there, it's easy for them to be recruited into insurgencies, into extremisms, as we're seeing already happening on the African continent. So I would want to see people consider, yes, emission is also important. Let's drive down emissions because we cannot adapt indefinitely. But when you drive down emissions, please let us make a deliberate effort that every community, every international organization should have a pledge on its war that I pledge to balance mitigation and adaptation finance. 50-50, that's what the global goal is. But I can tell you it's easier to finance climate change mitigation because you can count the CO2. And most of these resources given are loans. So government find it easier, private sector operators find it easier to come in take money from these international organizations and finance mitigation because it's revenue generating. But adaptation, most cases are not, or is not that revenue generating. So people don't go into that space. We need to create the enabling environment to attract people, attract investment, attract the private sector into that adaptation space. If not, we will continue to see that the countries who did not contribute to emissions will continue to suffer because Adaptation is considered a global public good, does not generate income. Yeah, and I I heard you talk in another interview also about the importance of the private sector um, in climate change mitigation and adaptation um, on the continent. But I was wondering if you have seen... Um, while not directly linked to climate finance and climate change, have you seen monetary programs like structural adjustment programs or the CFA franc affecting the ability of African countries to do this adaptation um, in your experience? Well, uh, if the economy is not robust, if the economy is not robust, you're going to have quite a lot of challenges. Let's not look at individual currencies. The Chinese one is not stronger than the Central African Republic uh, franc, but they're building you know, their communities. They're building their economies. It's one of the largest or fastest growing economies, not the currency, but the policies within those economies 
that could affect or influence economic development are intricately intertwined with climate change. I'll give you an instance. Um, we're struggling with fuel subsidies in most developing countries that rely on fossil fuel, a lot. Most of those countries have had to heavily subsidize fossil fuels, heavily subsidize. And once you do that, means you have less resources available to actually put in, in renewable energy. You have less resources available for you to put in sustainable land management or to put in climate smart agriculture. You know, so, and because you have also subsidized that sector very highly, you will find investors are not willing to come in because it's not the true reflection of the cost of their investments. So in all ways, you'll realize that there is a problem, you know, that you've subsidized. It's only the government that can pay the rates, the tariffs that come out eventually. The private sector will not be able to recoup its resources. So those policies also affect uh, what it is that we do with climate change. And then I'll give you another instance, quick instance. If you, if a central bank does not have in its policy a stress test for commercial banks in terms of climate risks, we're going to realize that they wake up one morning and realize that their investment, like happened in Mozambique, is wiped off. And that bank becomes very shaky. And once that happens, you have financial instability set into the country because the financial centers themselves I cannot stand, you know? And then, so all those things eventually have a bearing and reinforce one another. It reinforces our climate vulnerability and also reinforces the weak economy. We're looking for impact investors because it is impact investors that will come, not just the big profit making, that their bottom line is profit, whatever you do you will hardly find those investors in the environment of climate change space. But it is the impact investors that you will encourage who come in not just for the profit, but they say we want to leave a legacy, want to ensure that we have empowered women through our gender programs, want to make sure that the environment is not worse off than it was when we started this investment, want to make sure that we have built resilience in the communities within which we invested. If those same impact investors are going to go to the bank to get capital at the same rate, like someone who goes to Germany to import luxurious Mercedes-Benz cars, you will not find those impact investors there because their profit margin will not be like importing and selling Mercedes-Benz cars. So we are working to encourage, there's a lot we are doing to encourage countries to see this, that it's not all about profit, it's not all about GDP there will come a time that the GDP will become useless because nobody eats GDP. But we need to see real investments in the economy. Do you have any um, concerns about foreign direct investment? Like when you're talking about Mozambique and um, those countries on the eastern coast that suffered from the cyclones and their infrastructure that was you know, affected by that, um, do you feel like that potentially opens up a... I don't want to say a weak spot, but a, a potential point of vulnerability um, for countries that have accepted that that foreign direct investment. 
obviously, whether it's a foreign or national investment, vulnerability is vulnerability, in, in, irrespective of where the money comes from. And I am one of those very strong advocates of the fact that domestic resource mobilization could earn us more than foreign direct investments. Even the uh, 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 the migrant remittances that we are seeing in Africa, you know, in and these remittances are not in billions of dollars or millions of dollars. They are little tiny things people send to their homes to help, you know. So when you are able to send something to your grandmother at home to empower her farm, you know, you're able to send something to your brother to make sure that he expands his barbing salon for instance, you're finding that you're putting in quite a lot of money. Those resources get to reach a large population eventually. So the task force on climate-related financial disclosure was set up to address these sort of issues, that investment houses should be able to report on their risks, that everyone knows what is going into it. And that's really what it is that everyone has to do. But when you look at most of the financial institutions on the African continent, they haven't gotten to that point yet that they are even able to quantify their risks and know what to do. When you go to uh, Swiss Re, you know, the reinsurance company for Switzerland, Munich Re, these are long established insurance companies that have been set up for years, long years, well capacitated. They know how to price their premiums. They know what to do. They're doing quite a lot of research. But when you come to the African continent, what do we find? We find that many of our insurance companies are unable to factor in climate risks into their premiums. So that's where the need is. How do we help these insurance companies to be able to build you know, a system that allows them to adequately factor in climate risk and cost the insurance premiums appropriately? How do we empower them to be able to report on their investments so that we know the ones that are shaky and see how we can build resilience into them? Is this completely their fault? No. The number of functioning climate centers weather stations in Africa is less than what you have in the country of Switzerland as a small country compared to what we have in the whole of Africa. So if you don't have the data, you're planning in the dark. You cannot blame the insurance companies. You cannot blame the sovereign wealth fund for investing in this because they don't have the climate data. So we tell people it is in everyone's interest that we build resilience and adaptive capacity in Africa. When we had Hurricane Idai, we had Hurricane Fanny in India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, around those areas. I think, listen, one person dead is more than enough. It's one person too much. Nobody should die from these disasters if we can plan for it. But I think they lost people, I, can't, I don't know if it was about 84 or less, far less. We lost a thousand. Why? Because we don't have any warning systems. It comes upon you and it takes you. So we need to establish this early warning system. We need to ensure that these are the things that will help even financial institutions to plan their investments. 
you know what to do. What we do in the African Development Bank is we're not saying don't invest in Mozambique, but please build resilience into that. Japan is, is so used to having earthquakes that you find their high-rise buildings, they can work, they can share, but you hardly find them being thrown away except by the higher or highest level of earthquakes. Why can't you do that with our infrastructure concerning climate change? It's not every breeze that blows that should carry it away. It's not every time that it rains. Africans eat. When it doesn't rain, we go into famine because there was a drought. How can we build resilience into this? And these are the questions that the African Development Bank is answering and responding to. That Yeah, that I mean, that's great. I really appreciate all that you just said. Um, it definitely gave me a lot of perspective because I never really have thought about how we really need to be innovative in our mitigation and our adaptation to climate change on the African continent. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to adapt to that with the technologies and the capacities that we have um, today. Have you seen ways in which colonial legacies have impacted climate change and the ability to adapt to it? Yes, let me, when you look at most big cities in Africa, they are the coast. This was deliberately established by colonialism to be able to export raw materials from the sea. So they built seaports, built coastal cities, built road systems, railways, roads to take goods from the hinterland to the ports. Now we are seeing sea level rise. Most of our cities stand threatened, not because we decided we wanted to build them there, but because that's what we inherited. So when you look at most African cities, they are coastal cities. Start from Alexandra, go down all through, even Cairo on the, by the Nile. You know? And you can't run away from the fact that the Mediterranean feeds into it. So that's the legacy. And that means we now are struggling that when there is a cyclone, the cyclone is not going to hit me in the Sahel, hardly. It will hit me because I'm in the city. And that city is by the coast. My proximity to the coast determines my vulnerability. So the fact that these cities are by the coast means these cyclones, when they come, the greatest impact will be on these cities. The same thing with infrastructure. When you have roads that are inundated, the sea level rise 60, 70 years ago is not what we have today. So most of those coastal roads are in danger. What are we doing? Struggling to say, how do we build uh, flood protection you know, on those roads? So that already is a vulnerability that we've found is there because of how the sort of system that we inherited. The other thing I, there is not even uh, there is we most African countries we tell ourselves we rely on commodities and that's the relic of colonialism there were a lot of them traders what can we get from Africa and export to the various other countries and make money out of it 
So you had cocoa cut, put in containers, shipped. Cassava uprooted, put in containers, shipped. Tin, diamond, gold, uproot, put in containers, shipped. We did not establish processing manufacturing systems because it was not necessary in their views. It was necessary only in Europe where you could add value to those crops and then sell them at a profit. So it was better for you to buy cheap in Africa and then sell them and add value there. We have the largest source of cocoa on earth in Africa. But it will interest you to know that I think we control about 1% of the total chocolate uh, value. Where is the cocoa from? It's coming from Africa, but we're not there in the finished product. And we have inherited that system that we cut, we sell. We dig from the ground, we sell. We mine directly and we sell. So the rules of origin doesn't change the fact that Africa should add value to its crops. We have the lowest industrialization rates on earth. And the African Development Bank, in terms of agriculture, says, look, we have such fertile lands. We have such diversity of crops. And so we've established what we call the staple crop processing zones, that we should no longer be allowing people to cut cassava and sell. They'll take the cassava, they'll make starch, make the drugs, there's the medicines, do whatever needs to be done. And then they have 10 different products come out of the little cassava we sent. And we sent it at no cost. So what the African Development Bank is doing is that, look, we need to build staple crop processing zones across the continent. And we started that. Don't take your rice and sell. You can dehusk it, you can process it, you can sell it as bagged rice, just as we import this rice from Vietnam. The same thing with millet, the same thing with wheat. So these are the sort of things. And once you do this, we build into this climate resilient systems. For instance, we have developed or invested and developed drought-resistant, heat-tolerant crops, crop varieties, that will ensure that when we plant this in the Sahel and in the Horn of Africa, that they will grow and yield. And then we establish crop processing zones around there where those things are planted. So you can process them at least before you send them out. How do we ensure that our livestock, that we capture the methane, in that livestock and that we don't release it into the air because that's good cooking gas. That's good gas for generating sets, you know, and so on. So these are the sort of things we're doing at the African Development Bank and they're interwoven because we want to break that colonial legacy that we found ourselves in on the continent. And don't forget the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement is a major booster in this, that we now have a market to which you can trade not just raw materials, but processed uh, products. And then that means countries tend to earn a lot more money for themselves. Economic development and growth is a very strong indicator of resilience. So as countries grow their economies, they become increasingly resilient to everything, including climate change. So my last question for you, um, I, as we were just talking about colonial legacies, one of the biggest colonial legacies that that I've seen, and this is obviously not a new fact, um, is in institutions um, and colonial. So colonial legacies 
were a framing part of my research, and I tried to keep in mind the ideas uh, that I learned from Ajimoglu and, Ajimoglu and Robinson, that institutional legacies matter a lot to development, but they're also not destiny. Um, and so I was wondering, what countries have you seen be successful in overcoming these challenges, and do you think they can be implemented um, as examples elsewhere? That's the main countries that have been able to overcome the colonial legacies. Especially structural legacies. Like institutional legacies, um, institutional neo-patrimonialism, wherein there's maybe not necessarily the best... Um... No, let me, let, sorry, let me come in there. Yeah, go ahead. In case the time is up. The institutions are dynamic. Even the ministries of agriculture we had in 1960 are different from what we have today in every African country. We have evolved. There are so many good success stories, you know. We've not just sat down there and continued life as if we are in 1950. No, we have moved, we have progressed. A lot of things have happened. I'll give you an instance. When you look at what has happened in the renewable energy space, between the past decade and the present decade is like day and night on the African continent. 20 years ago, nobody even talked about solar. And we know that our farmers are being equipped with digital systems to allow them to farm properly. So a lot has happened in the African space. When it comes to traditional institutions like women, owning farmlands, women being in agriculture, we realize that, yes, the bulk of agricultural labor force is women. And we don't leave them behind. The African Development Bank has set up what we call the Affirmative Finance Action for Women in Africa that specifically targets women. And if one of the first projects we're doing is in Ghana, owned by the countries taking it up, the commercial banks that before would not give facilities, lines of credit to women. Now we put in about $20 million and say, look, use this as guarantee. You know, give out these loans to women. Where they default, take from here. Now we are seeing those commercial banks on their own because they have seen that women rarely default when they take you know, compared to the men. Now on their own, they are breaking new grounds, approaching women cooperatives, giving them loans. These are things that are happening as countries are evolving and seeing the need to address the issues that ought to be addressed. So there are success stories here and there. We've also seen countries that are gradually reforming, moving a, uh, subsidies, you know? And we're not just asking subsidies from petrol. We challenge even European countries let us know how much you have successfully removed that subsidy from agriculture. Then we'll tell you how much we have successfully removed from fossil fuels. The subsidy is not just about fossil fuel. When you heavily subsidize the farmers that African farmers can no longer be competitive, you wreck their economies. They cannot earn an income. And they fold their hands and move into the cities. And you're surprised why there's so much insurgency. 
the kids don't long want to go through what their parents and grandparents have gone through. So with limited education and limited adaptive capacity, they move into the cities. And then you see the crime rate and all those things happening because their source of livelihood can no longer sustain them. Let's deal with the issues of subsidy, not just in Africa, but let's deal with this globally. And we see we have a balanced world. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me. And, you know, you definitely brought up a lot of stuff that is not readily available in the kind of sphere of knowledge that that I'm in. While it's a lot of ideas that I've, like, looked at before, um, I think you have offered a really new perspective to me. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to meet with me today. Okay, cheers. And all the best. That was a great conversation. I particularly appreciate the way that he distinguished between mitigation and innovation and traced out the relationship between a focus on climate mitigation and increased debt. If I understood the argument correctly, he seemed to suggest that because mitigation efforts are financed largely through loans, African states' efforts to address climate change can make it harder to pursue some of their other development objectives because of deepening indebtedness. Yeah, I was really struck by his call for an early warning system of sorts across the continent and the need to focus on infrastructural development that is responsive to our our changing climate. This was an explicit shift away from mitigation to adaptation. Mitigation refers to the actions needed to reduce or eliminate the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing global climate change where adaptation refers to the actions we need to take to survive the changes that are taking place. Thus, we need to prepare ourselves for the consequences of climate change, particularly as we move into the realm of feedback loops and cascading effects. And this is not some threat off in the distance, as this conversation really showed. This is our reality today. Willa, what were some of the aspects of your conversation with Professor Nyong that really stood out to you? Well, his focus on climate change adaptation was by far the most striking aspect of our conversation because while it's obviously a part of a lot of climate change conversation, it wasn't something that I had heard spoken about so specifically before. Um, I also found it interesting that Professor Nyong was so focused on the private sector and foreign investments for this infrastructure um, to adapt to climate change. And FDI in Africa has always been kind of an interesting and challenging question to me. Um, And I had never heard it posited in this kind of way as a way to look forward um, to adapting to climate change. So after our conversation, I definitely have a new perspective of foreign direct investment um, and how it could be integral to Africa's climate adaptability. I just want to say I really loved how you brought in Ajimoglu and Robinson, since I know that their work is engaged in a couple of different places in our IR curriculum, including the intro class where we first met. Trying to link colonial institutions to contemporary forms of climate vulnerability can be hard, but his focus on the way that resource extraction led to the relative overdevelopment of coastal areas and then the consequent exposure of those coastal communities to climate vulnerability was a really helpful and clear explanation of what it means to study the long-term effects of colonialism in the contemporary context. I agree. That was a fascinating example of how European colonialism altered the social geography of the African continent that's had direct consequences for heightening African vulnerability to climate change. I also think about examples such as deforestation, the introduction of cash crops that have altered local ecosystems, and the building of dams and numerous misguided development projects. But I sense here that there's also a critique, Stacey, that you want to make. Yeah, that's true. 
Uh, I was a little disappointed by the response to your question, Willa, about whether or not there are examples of some states navigating these legacies well. As a comparativist, I'm always interested in a story about variation. Why do some states address similar challenges differently than others? And his response seemed to focus on lending programs to individuals and categories of individuals like women. And that kind of left me wondering what role he does or maybe doesn't see for the state in shaping both development and climate policy. What's your take on this? Well, I think Dr. Nyong wanted to highlight that African countries are certainly not stuck in the 60s um, or in the early post-colonial period. And I think that it's a fair point to want to make. Oftentimes, many African countries are seen as having little agency or are rarely regarded as burgeoning an innovative stage, which is a poor, like, a poor assessment of these countries. And I think that was the point that he was getting at. However, that being said, I think that there are legacies of colonial colonialism, some of which he mentioned in other points of this podcast, like countries that only export primary products that are ingrained in legal structures, in trade policies and in international finance programs like structural adjustment programs and other other monetary policies that while not having obvious linkages to climate change and contributing to poverty and violence are simply impeding um, development and therefore worsening lived experiences of climate change and the abilities of states to adapt to it. And I think it could have been, uh, I could have been clearer in how I asked the question, but from what I took from the totality of the interview and his response to this question is, I don't think he doesn't believe in individual states having a role in climate change response, but I do believe he sees collective action through the African Development Bank and also through FDI as playing a major role in combating this issue. Uh, that's a really thoughtful response, Willa. And uh, Stacey, I think you're asking a really interesting question here in terms of how Professor Nyong kind of framed his, his answer. You know, among Africanists, we often talk about African states being limited or choiceless, often in the context of choiceless democracies where there's very little ideological or policy differences between the competing political parties. And that's because most African states are incredibly limited in their policy options because of restrictions and conditionalities imposed by foreign donors, whether they be the IMF and World Bank or the US, UK, and France. So when I was listening to the interview, I took Nyong's relative silence about the variations in climate change policies and development strategies amongst African states as actually evidence of their relative limited agency in mapping out policies and developmental strategies. Well, I might have been actually wearing my Middle East and North Africa hat when I made that observation because the state is actually often overstated in the context of the region that I study. But if we want to think about this story beyond Africa, I also really was interested in his discussion of fuel subsidies. There's a lot of international pressure from some of the same sources that you just mentioned um, on states in the Middle East and North Africa to roll back their own subsidies on fuel. And one of the reasons that Professor Nyong didn't discuss, but one which links this to conflict and to Africa, is the impact of subsidies on black markets. So subsidized fuel, for example, is smuggled out of the Arabian Peninsula to the Horn of Africa, where it generates huge profits for smugglers and is often rolled into human trafficking and weapons sales as well. So in other words, reducing subsidies on fuel might not just have a positive impact on the environment, but also on conflict and human rights. 
At the same time, I was really happy to hear him talk about subsidy reform in a global context that would also bring European agricultural subsidies into question, since these are hurting African farmers directly. That part of the discussion really brought into focus what you meant by catastrophic convergence and how important it is that we consider the political implications of policy in one area, whether it's environment, development, or security, in terms of its impact on the others. And that we keep in mind as well the different kinds of linkages, historical and contemporary, that are connecting different regions of the world. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, we usually include what we refer to as non-traditional text uh, in this podcast. And for this episode, Willa, you chose the song Save Our Land. Willa, do you want to say a few words about the song before we hear it? Yeah, I think the song did a lot to kind of reveal to me, I mean, one of the major refrain of the song is just save our land. And I think it kind of highlighted um, what I talked about in my research is that what's going on with climate change and the way that climate change is going to be felt on the African continent is not a direct cause of African states um, polluting and contributing to climate change. However, places in Africa and other places throughout um, the developing world are going to be feeling those effects the most. Um, and it was the, that refrain of like, save our land was very touching to me, but also really upsetting and sad. Excellent. So here's the song, Save Our Land, as performed by Ras Kimono from Nigeria, Betty G from Ethiopia, and Johnny Raga, who's also from Ethiopia. And this was actually the official theme song for the 7th African Development Forum with the theme, Acting on Climate Change for Sustainable Development in Africa. Here's the song, Save Our Land. Mother, it is crying. Too much pollution. And the leaders of the world are watching. Let's come together to save Mother Earth. Stop the desert encroachment. Rust monocessor. People have come together. We save our land. Save our land. Generation, Save our land, save our land. 
pensées à l'avenir. Il faut agir, protéger la sérénité de notre continent. Le réchauffement de la terre détruit la nature et rend la vie impossible. Joignons nos efforts pour lutter contre ce désastre mondial. Sauver l'environnement, penser à l'avenir. Willa, thanks so much for that great interview with Professor Nyong and for sharing some of your insights based on your own research while you've been here at HWS. These are important and pressing issues. The stakes are high and there are no easy solutions. After all, when looking at global problems, things may appear simple at first, but we quickly realize that it's more complicated than that. Professor Don. You've been listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast on world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This episode was conceived by Willa Dow, hosted by Stacey Philbrick Yadav and Kevin Dunn. It was produced by me, Kelly Walker. This has been a production of the IR program at HWS and the Geneva Sound Factory. Thanks for listening.